you were here last week, you know that I had a very sensitive plant, our orchid that had bloomed one time, thankfully just in time. I decided not to bring it this week because the second bloom opened and I was a little bit petrified that they were going to fall off and then and then we wouldn't, since they only bloom once a year, then we, don't, we wouldn't have be able to enjoy them for the rest of the year. But we are continuing on at our look at a few stories in the Bible of people who took the opportunity that was presented to them to lean toward the light. The story we looked at last week was Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well and the result of that interaction, which was a very unusual one because as we know, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. They did not, not want anything to do with each other. And Jesus basically says, that's all hogwash. All that I offer is for you as well. And she responds, and not only this woman's life is changed, but she brings the good news back to her town. And it says, many people believed in Jesus. And we know that our growth, primarily our spiritual growth, but our growth in so many ways is dependent on our position and our proximity to Jesus. Those were two of the words we used last week. Our position to Jesus, our um, kind of direction or orientation. Am I moving towards Jesus or not? And our proximity, that as we get closer and closer to the light, Jesus is the light of the world, that the closer we get, the greater the effect. As our distance to Jesus decreases, as our movement towards him grows stronger, that we experience more growth and thriving. We also experience a whole bunch of other things. Sometimes the closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize the areas that are not matching up. And that's also a word that can come through proximity to Jesus. Today we are looking at another story in the Gospel of John, the man born blind. It's another example of how position and proximity to Jesus can change everything. And I want to encourage you to continue in this season to draw near to the light. As you draw near to the light, the insight that you gain through your proximity to Christ will both encourage you to continue leaning in. It's sort of like that cascade effect that once sometimes the hardest thing to do is to get started. We know this to be true in much of our life. And it will also challenge us to confront our own ideas about how we think God should be working, not just in our lives, but in the world. For many in Jesus' day, leaning towards the light of God involved a set of prescribed ideas and rituals and rhythms to life. And some of them were very good. You know that some of the rituals, the rhythms, the patterns of life that you are in, some of them are very good and very helpful, and some of them are not. Many things were good in Jesus' day, that people would look to the word that God had given through the wisdom of Abraham and Moses, 
all of the Old Testament law and the prophets, and people learned a whole lot about what God was looking for. But they also were selective in what they remembered. Because some of the same prophets that would confirm some of their ideas also would press against taking things too literally or hard. They encouraged a lot of things that sometimes we forget. Religious life in that day was intimately tied to regular community life. It's almost a, it's a very different experience than we often have today. That religious life and community life were almost inseparable. And life in the temple or in the local synagogue was where a lot of your community life happened. Your participation in the community revolved around that. It was like the town square where religious life and all the other different aspects that we tend to compartmentalize were all coming together all the time. And as traditions became embedded, rules and interpretations were added, and they were controlled often by religious leaders who had immense power. So thank you for waving to me, but please don't bow. All right? Those leaders in that day had so much power, and it's hard for us to conceptualize the amount of power that they had. They had the power to control your continued life in the community, or they could cut you off in an instant. As our story will highlight today, a clash is coming. A clash is coming between the religion keepers and suddenly this new man who shows up, who some called a prophet. A man seemingly doing works only possible with God's help. And yet doing things that broke some of the rules. And so some people said, how can this be a man from God? How can this be? Is this how God is at work? It can't be. Our story today is in John chapter 9 and it plays out. We've looked at this story before. It plays out in five scenes or series of meetings between Jesus, a man, and some of the religious leaders, and a few other people. And in this encounter with Jesus, there is a decision that has to be made. It's an opportunity to lean towards and walk in the light he reveals, or to stay in the darkness, to remain in the darkness of a religious way gone cold. So let's dive in to explore these meetings today. I'm going to read the scripture in five different sections this morning. The first one is Jesus healing this man born blind. On the Sabbath, no less. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. If you have a Bible, you can open up or you can pull it up on your phone. I'm reading from the uh, New International Version this morning. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. 
Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. It's kind of matter of fact about this miracle that's just taken place. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. And he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. I'll stop there. It's always a little interesting to me that the disciples' first inclination with this man when they encounter him is that somehow he was at fault. That somehow somebody must have sinned to make this happen. It's interesting because that same idea gets perpetrated today as well. People think that when things go wrong, or when you get sick, or something happens in your life, that somehow you must have done something wrong. You must have crossed God in some way, and you're being punished. The disciples, this is how they think initially. They don't ask, did the man sin? They assume somebody is at fault. And if it's not his fault, then it must be his parents, his upbringing. Maybe they weren't good parents. You can see how all these assumptions are flying around. And what's amazing is Jesus quickly corrects their misinterpretation. We still do this today. You see, when we don't understand why challenging and painful things happen to someone or one person and not to someone else, our brains have trouble with that. And so we end up creating ideas and theories in our head that try to explain why suffering happens. We, just want, to blame something. we want to blame something. We need to wrap our brains for it to make sense somehow. And I think this is some of what the disciples were doing. Some of it is understandable because when you look at the Old Testament, some of the prevailing wisdom of the day seemed to indicate that. Consider all the way back in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. There's one of the commandments that says, You shall not bow down to them, that is idols, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And that's the part that people remembered. But then they forget the second part, which says, but showering love on those who follow me for a thousand generations. 
And so this is the mentality that people, that God's people especially had, that if you somehow sinned, that it was either your fault or someone in your family, and it was a result of your own sin. Maybe it was unconfessed or hidden sin. And I think Jesus is saying, no, that's not always the case. On the other hand, there are other parts in the Old Testament, I'm not going to put all the verses up there, but there are many times where the Bible is very clear not to take an overly literal approach. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular end up pushing back against this idea. Ezekiel actually says, no, everyone is going to have to stand on their own merits. That just because you have someone in your family that has done something wrong, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be punished, although we do know that the effects of our sin can carry over. There can be collateral damage, and there often is from generation to generation. The book of Job also undermines the prevailing wisdom of the day. It said that somehow all the suffering that Job went through, remember he had horrible things happen physically to his body. He had everything taken away from him. He had people in his life that died. And his friends basically say, well, it must be your fault somehow. And in the very end, God actually critiques the, his friends and says, no, you guys have been totally wrong. You've been totally wrong because suffering is often a mystery, but our brains don't like that mystery. We want some sort of certainty. Job himself at the very end of his book says that his, he thought he saw, but he realized that his eyes were closed. And it wasn't until later on that he realized that he actually experienced the power of God in his life. Jesus rejects assigning blame for the cause of this man's blindness. What does he say? This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. After this, it tells us that his neighbors noticed that he was no longer blind. This is a guy that they had probably walked by for years and years and years. And so what do they do? Instead of congratulating him, they bring him to the religious police of the day. They bring him to the Pharisees for interrogation. Let me read the second section, verses 13 through 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, that is Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he's a prophet. It's really hard for us to understand the power that this group of people had 
over the people. So much power, the ability to make or break this man's life in the community at a moment's notice. They so wanted to look good in their attempts to follow God. Look how good I am. Look how knowledgeable I am. Aren't I a good follower of God? And according to their strict rules that they had developed over time, you could not heal by mixing saliva and mud as Jesus had done, and to do so on the Sabbath was unthinkable. Oh, the humanity. Many thought it would be impossible for a person of God to do such things. And yet, isn't that often how we see Jesus work? Doing the things that seem unthinkable, unimaginable. Going against the grain, yeah. Jesus had already actually battled the Pharisees multiple times on their traditions and rules that were sort of add-ons to the good news of God. He had actually already said, it's, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That people over rules is always a good idea. Instead, they're more concerned about did he use mud, and when he did it, and how he did it, and when the healing took place. And they, work, they are working so hard to discredit Jesus in order to maintain their power. You know, that's one of those insidious things about power. That's often what happens, even in our world, and maybe even more so in our world today. And they are stubbornly blind to what everyone else can see. And they're blind and they don't know it. Because no one has yet said anything directly to implicate Jesus. They decide to double down on a bad call. And they add pressure. And they think, how can we put more pressure on this guy? Let's bring in his elderly parents. Let's bring them before the tribunal. This is the third scene. Verse 18. I know! All he's, trying, all he's doing is seeing for the first time in forever, in his entire life. I know, right? 18 says, They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we, we may, maybe he's a redhead, so it's very obvious. I don't know. We know he's our son, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
In other words, we're not going to die on this hill. We're passing the buck. And it's easy for us to criticize them until we remember that being thrown out of the synagogue was more than just being kicked out of church. It was being cut off from your life in the community. Everything that you'd spent your whole life for. We kind of, we don't, I don't know that we have a, an analogous sort of thing today. The gravity of it is very difficult to accept. The way things were, was so ingrained in the people that to them it was downright impossible to see a way out of this interrogation. They were afraid of these leaders. Just like people are afraid of so many people in power today. You can understand why they would make this call. But for whatever they said or didn't say, the Pharisees still didn't hear that smoking gun evidence that would allow them to act against Jesus at this point. So they bring the man back again for a second interrogation. Scene 4. Verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. The man replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Just like the hymn says. Facts. I like that, exactly. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? They're still trying to get that info. How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> you almost feel the snarkiness of this guy at that particular moment. That's why I like him. Do you want to become his disciples too? You can imagine the Pharisees did not like that. Verse 28. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. I'm adding the tone. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. You can almost imagine the snarl. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Again, they don't get the answer they want. And they interrogate this guy and they pressure him and they try to make him feel religiously guilty. Give God glory by telling the truth. 
They were almost using an oath, getting him to kind of swear on God himself to tell the truth. They want to trip him up. There's an irony in this, as the truth and God's glory is right in front of them, but they are unwilling to see and accept it. They couldn't even conceptualize in their mind that God could work in this way. I love that response. Whether he is a sinner or not, one thing I do know. Facts. I was blind, but now I see. And then I like his boldness. Do you want to become his disciples too? Amazingly, when they insult this guy, and they try to dig the knife in deep, he responds to these people that everyone was afraid of, these people that claimed the most amount of knowledge about God, and he gives them more or less a scripture lesson, that God only works or speaks to those who follow his will, the will of those that do good. They don't like that at all. Instead of seeing this man as an example of God's glory, they see it as proof that Jesus could not be from God. Bless you. What a small sense of what is possible for God. And like you said, Ray, it's also something that we can, the question we can turn on ourselves. When do we have such a small sense of what God can do? or how God can operate in our world when we think we know it all. Ultimately, they throw this man out of the synagogue and they cut him off from any religious or civic life in the community. And this guy has given up, given up everything at this point. He's received his sight and he's lost everything else. And this is when Jesus finds him again. Scene 5, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you speaking with you. Facts. Just like last week in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, it's one of the few times where Jesus clearly identifies himself. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He clearly identifies himself to people who are open to hear. Then the man said, verse 38, one of the great lines in all of Scripture, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? 
They couldn't even consider the possibility. In the last verse, Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. When we've looked at this story before, it's almost like there's a double healing in this story. The physical healing of this man's blindness and the healing of this man who had his eyes opened to see God in front of him. Jesus always sees the heart and he often does this by starting with a question. He asks the man a simple question and the man is ready to say yes. His heart is at that point. He confesses his belief in Jesus and worships him. Talk about taking the opportunity to lean toward the light all the way. Not just a little way like a plant sometimes does, but imagine a plant in your window week after week after week getting closer and closer to the light. This guy does it all in one fell swoop. Jesus uses this opportunity to show us the kingdom's upside-down ways that make the blind see and those who think they see are found to be blind. So we can ask ourselves some questions as well. I put a few on the back of your bulletin so you don't have to write them down. Where does our blindness remain? Or another way of saying that is, where am I resistant to see God's work in the world? Could God actually be working in the people, in the situations that I don't like? The people who are my enemies? The situations that I would never be a part of? Can God be at work in that? Or you can even bring it closer into yourself in this moment. What does God want to heal in you? And it might not just be the aching knee. The story of this man continues to resonate today. It's an amazing example of someone being healed and they had never seen it before. And actually, if you go on and you read into the book of Acts, you start to see these kinds of healings happen more and more. In one sense, we can see the irony of the fact that a blind man has more vision and knowledge than the religious, knowledgeable people of that day. People who are so blind that they can't experience the glory of God made real in this man let alone be happy for him. Yes, sometimes God works in ways that we find hard to believe or accept. This morning, believe that God is also at work in you. That God is already giving you opportunities right now to lean toward his light. All he asks is for you to respond. This morning I pray that each of you might be able to have an encounter this week. An encounter with the living Christ, the light of the world 
that not only opens your eyes to see, but will allow you to grow spiritually and thrive physically and mentally and emotionally and relationally. May the healing that you experience give you restored vision to lean toward the light, drawing near to the source that makes everything else possible in your life. I pray God's blessing upon you. Church, let's pray. God, we thank you for your light. And I thank you for the strength and the boldness of this man whom your son Jesus healed physically and healed spiritually. Thank you for his boldness to not bend the truth, to stand firm even though it actually cost him so much. And yet when Jesus spoke those words to him, he realized, oh, what I am gaining in the process. God, I pray that we might have that same kind of attitude. Will you walk with your people this week, directing their steps, lifting their eyes, opening their ears if need be, and allowing them to lean more into you this week. God, thank you for your word and for how it always teaches us and inspires us and encourages us and challenges us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. The church says, Amen. The end of John, John chapter 20. John actually gives the reason for why he wrote and recorded everything down. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So church, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, be at peace as you go empowered to love and serve God and one another. Amen and amen. Go in peace.